This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. There's incredible ecological resources, water supply resources, places that are important to communities and to agriculture, the $1.4 trillion economy that also need to be considered in the equation of how to manage this river. So it's more than just water supply. It's more than just some number on a spreadsheet that says we can take this amount of cuts. It's really talking about life and sustainability in the Southwest. Today's episode comes to you from our contributing host, Samara Rosen, and is the second year in a row the River Radius is covering the 10 most endangered rivers list from American Rivers. Samara talks with two guests from American Rivers about each river on this list and the power of understanding our rivers. Please welcome River Radius contributing host, Samara Rosen. This episode comes to you from what may be the beginning of a tradition. Last year, Sam Carter interviewed Amy Sowers-Kober and Matt Rice on the most endangered rivers of 2022. This year, Sam extended the opportunity to me. Every year for the last 38 years, American Rivers publishes their report of America's most endangered rivers. As a river lover and river advocate, I look forward to this list because it helps me prioritize where to put my energy and how to best engage in ongoing campaigns to protect rivers across the United States. American Rivers is a national nonprofit working to connect wild rivers, restore damaged rivers, and conserve clean water for people and nature. You can also check out Sam's interview with their executive director, Tom Kiernan, about his story and what's on the horizon for American Rivers. In this episode, we will explore why this report is so effective at generating protection of rivers, reveal the 10 most endangered rivers in the United States of 2023, and acknowledge the complex tensions of managing 2023's most endangered river. I'm excited to introduce two American River staff members. Please welcome Amy Sowers-Kober and Sinjin Eberly. Hi, I'm Amy Sowers-Kober. I'm the Vice President for Communications at American Rivers, uh, based in Portland, Oregon. I've been with the organization for, I've kind of lost count, um, I think 20, 25 years, something like that. Why do I do what I do? I love both the spiritual aspects of rivers and the very practical aspects of why rivers matter in our lives. And I get to work with people like Sinjin. So. <laughs> and I'm Sinjin Eberly. Um, I'm the Southwest Communications Director with American Rivers. I live in the best place ever, Durango, Colorado. I've been with American Rivers for about nine years now. And uh, I love the opportunities that I have to have an impact on Western rivers and uh, Southwestern landscapes. I grew up in this part of the country, and I believe very strongly that somebody needs to be there to speak for the rivers, and I'm happy to dedicate the rest of my career doing this. Would you overview what American Rivers does? So American Rivers is a national organization, and we champion the protection and restoration of rivers everywhere, from the most remote wild mountain streams to the most urban waterways. We believe everybody deserves a healthy river, no matter who you are, or where you live. And we believe that all life depends on rivers. Every living being, including ourselves, needs healthy, clean, free-flowing rivers. American Rivers has a report that comes out every year, and it has for the last 38 years, called America's Most Endangered Rivers Report. Tell us about it. What is it? What does it do? Yeah, so this is an annual list, our top 10 list that we put out every year. 
It's a list of rivers that need urgent attention. We send out a call for nominations every year um, and local advocates nominate their rivers to be on this list of 10. I can get into the criteria in a minute, but really what this list does is it amplifies 10 rivers that need urgent action. You'll see it in the news, you'll see it on social media, it gets the attention of decision makers and it's a call to do the right thing for the river, whatever that is. Every river has a specific decision point. What's the appeal to creating a targeted list rather than to focus on every single river campaign out there? A lot of people really still feel like it's hard to know what to dig your teeth into when there's so many issues surrounding us every day. This is a focused professional way to think about what can I do to help and put the limited energy that I have into doing something like this. Lists are powerful. People love lists. People will click on a list, right? But it's hard. It's really hard. There's more than 3 million miles of rivers in the country. There are a number of examples, though, where being listed as part of the most endangered rivers has had a direct impact in stopping bad things that could have happened on rivers. A few years ago, we listed the Gila in southwestern New Mexico because of the threat of a proposed dam complex that could have dammed the last wild free-flowing river in New Mexico, and in part because of most endangered rivers and raising the profile of this small river in the small corner of New Mexico on a big national scale, there was change. You could argue that the public outcry about damming this river created the environment where the state government could say, no, we're not going to do that. It's not worth it. It's not worth the investment, et cetera. Did we do it on our own? Of course not. We have partners in all of these listings, but it just really points to how our platform and the ability to elevate these issues on a national or international scale can be really effective. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Sinjin, because people often ask, well, does it make a difference? You know, we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of media hits and all the stories and does it make a difference? And the Klamath is another one. We're about to see the world's biggest dam removal ever in history. Klamath was on the most endangered list for years because of those dams. So it does play a role in kind of bringing the conversation up to that national level, which is often really necessary to get anything done. When I think about informational or advocacy campaigns. I think about the ultimate goal of getting people to take action. You know, the people that are filling out that online petition or the government office that's making some decision. And I think about how there's kind of a a continuum from caring about and knowing about an issue to acting on an issue. How does this list move people along that continuum? Yeah, well, there's a lot of ways that you can take action on any of these rivers. We have an actual email that you can send to the decision maker on that river. That is what we really want people to do. Get your voice into that decision maker's office. Uh, But there are also a lot of other ways. Uh, Share it on social media. Tell your friends about it. Donate to American Rivers. Donate to our local partners because we have partners on each of these rivers that are really important Yeah, it is a spectrum. And our goal is to get people thinking about these rivers and doing something that feels meaningful to them. Today's episode is sponsored by the Denver area Nissan dealers. Right now I'm driving my Nissan Frontier long bed four-door truck with a camper shell. We're on a 6% grade climbing uphill. Three dudes in the truck, bed full of gear, pulling a trailer with three boats stacked, all the gear. And we are just climbing. This Frontier has a nine-speed transmission. 
super smooth uphill shifting real steady climbing roads are slick trucks holding great it's just really comfortable safe strong boating truck you can find your denver area nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com Amy, a few minutes ago, you mentioned that there was criteria that goes into how these 10 rivers are selected. Would you summarize what those criteria are? Yeah, so there are three criteria. One is the significance of the river, the people and wildlife. Two is the magnitude of the threat. And three is what I mentioned before, the decision point facing that river and whether the public can influence that in the coming year. And it could be on the local, state, or federal level. That window of opportunity is always a really important one to make sure that all of us who care and who want to speak for the river and water and all these values, our voices are in there. They're on the record and they're being counted. If you miss that window, maybe these management decisions are going to be made and they're going to be locked in for the next 5, 10, 20 years. We missed our missed our chance. So like getting those opportunities are really important. Um, Sinjin, would you say anything else about the about the decision point? Maybe there isn't an official agency process in place right now, but hey, government, it would be really great if you would do this. And then they translate that into what do they want to do next to try to protect this place, sustain this place? Yeah, like I don't want it to make it sound like we only care about rivers that are in some perfect process. I mean, it's if something is egregious, we're going to call it out. The power of the report is that we do the work to really think through, well, what is the action? We're really being specific about what is needed. Specificity is really important when we're making these big calls to action. And American Rivers has been doing this specific report for 38 years. Has the criteria evolved as you've learned from each campaign? Honestly, I think the first, like I'm using air quotes, like report, it was like a press release with a list of rivers, like these are the rivers. And we have gotten a, like, this thing is dialed. I mean, it is, it is, it is fact checked. It's really not just sounding the alarm, like, yes. And we're putting a lot of thought into what we're calling for. Our credibility is on the line. Our reputation's on the line. Our partners, we're all on the line with what we're calling for here. And we want to make sure um, it's fair. It's science-based. And it's what the river needs. And we're doing it in a way that's going to benefit the people who live along the river. Each year, the report has a different theme. What's the theme of 2023? Our human health and public safety relies on the health of rivers. There are lots of examples about why that's true. If you're thinking about your health in terms of the drinking water that you're consuming from rivers public safety in terms of climate change, bringing more floods, more droughts. If you're thinking about cultural well-being is connected to river health and the health of our environment. And you both have a personal relationship to rivers. Do you feel a personal connection of rivers playing roles of health and safety in your own lives? Oh my gosh, in so many ways, rivers fill my bucket, right? Personally, spiritually, my soul feels good when it's out on a river. I also really care about my own health and the water that it's coming through my family's faucets. Well, I would take everything that Amy just said, because she didn't leave me a lot of space to expand, except that 
you know, I love the community that I live in so much. We have a river that runs right downtown, right through Durango, Colorado. And, you know, I think about how much that river means to this community, the health of this that river means to this community. And then I extrapolate that out to all the other communities across the West, across the country, around the world. I believe that the river is fundamental to the character of Durango, the character of so many other communities across the West. And community is so, so important, especially in such a digital world. The community that revolves around this place, but also speaks to our own personal well-being is just really, really important. And I'm super proud to work on behalf of that. Rivers just can teach us so much about how to live and how to be. I want to make an observation that in talking about rivers, you use the word place. Sometimes in discord around rivers, I hear words around cubic feet per second or megawatts, and it reduces rivers down to a number. But what you're talking about is very different. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, rivers are living beings. I'm often like writing a press release or writing some official And for years, it has frustrated me that we don't necessarily have the language to fully communicate what we're talking about. We have cubic feet per second, and we have technical words about endangered species, but it's hard sometimes to put into words without using like poetry. And that's why I think there is such an important role for art, for music, for literature, like and really fully expressing the importance of rivers, of places we care about. And what about like this one local person on this river, their story can tell you more about the value of this river than any number can. We need all of those voices and all those perspectives to tell those stories because when you're just kind of sharing one slice of it, it just doesn't come across. I spend a lot of my time in millions of acre feet and how many traces are in the CRSS model that is projecting out what are the inflows for the next 24 months. It can be extremely technical. I have a very good friend that we've worked with for many years who almost refuses to call the river a river, even though it literally runs right through his ranch. It's a resource. And, you know, so many times when he says that, I'm like, dude, it's not a resource. It's a river. And it's providing many more things than just a hole in the ground that you're going to dig iron ore out of. It is the the foundation of all of the things that you love about living, which is wildlife, health and, and vitality and its spirituality. And it's all of these things combined. And it's fun. At the end of the day, it's also really fun to get on a river, whether you're fly fishing in it, or you're reading poetry next to it, or you're on a raft or a boat or a kayak, it's so much more than just a resource. Decision makers get caught up in this stuff because there's all these metrics that we have to follow. And there's all of this nuance around how the river should be managed. But that's the beauty of what we do is we can kind of do both. We have this opportunity to express the beauty. We have a robust photo library. We do a lot of video and media and filmmaking work that channels some of the emotional connection that you can have to a river and couple that with the details around how society needs to be able to survive and and manage and sustain the resources that are around us, including rivers. There's a river guide 
His name is Austin Alvarado. He uh, guides on the Rio Grande and Big Bend. This was several years ago. He just said, when you put the river first, everything else falls into place. Because we're often, you know, how do you how do you manage all these conflicting demands and communities and just put the river first? We have been circling around this report talking about what it is and how it's been so intentionally crafted. Let's talk about the most endangered rivers of 2023. To build suspense and follow in the footsteps of last year's episode of the report, let's begin the countdown from the 10th river listed and work our way up to number one, where we can do a big deep dive into the most endangered river of 2023. So at number 10 on this year's Most Endangered Rivers list is the Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia and Florida. This is an incredibly unique wetland, amazing clean water, amazing wildlife habitat, uh, but it's threatened by a proposed titanium mine, and it is simply not the place for this mine. So we're calling on the state of Georgia to deny this permit. At number nine is the Rio Gallinas in New Mexico. And here, climate change and outdated forest management are threatening this incredible river and all of the people and wildlife that it supports. So this river is really a poster child for threat of climate change and fire to rivers in New Mexico and the Southwest. And so we need to improve forest management to protect this river. Number eight is the Chilkat and Klahini rivers in Alaska. This is habitat for the largest concentration of bald eagles in the world. Incredible ecosystem, not only for eagles, but for salmon, for Alaska natives that live there, but it's threatened by pollution from a proposed copper and zinc mine. Not the place for this kind of mine. We need to put a stop to that mine to protect these rivers. I see a theme. Already we've talked about two different mining operations And we've also talked about where it makes sense to apply pressure, but thinking about also that feeling of learned hopelessness, like how does my voice actually matter? What leverage do we have with any of these campaigns? So each of these rivers has a specific, we call them action alerts. Um, It is a, if you go to AmericanRivers.org, you can find it on the homepage, a link to the most endangered rivers action opportunities. Each of these rivers has a special link you can click to send a tailored message to those decision makers on that particular river. On the Okefenokee Swamp, for example, the state of Georgia is making this decision about the mine. So the more people we get sending emails, making phone calls into that state of Georgia agency, the better. They need to hear from us and they need to hear from all of you. Are there specific examples of when online petitions or letter writing campaigns have been effective in protecting rivers? Absolutely. One example is on the Buffalo National River in Arkansas. This was a most endangered river several years ago. It's a federally protected, pristine river, clean water, amazing place for canoeing and recreation. And it was threatened by um, an industrial hog farm. Not the place, right? Not the not the place for this industrial hog farm with all the waste that would pollute this incredibly pristine river. And the local partners on that river had been fighting this thing and needed help. So they contacted American Rivers and said, can we list this on most endangered rivers, get the national attention and help into the governor of Arkansas to stop this thing? And it worked. Within days of, of announcing that year's list, 
the governor then made an announcement that we're stopping the hog farm and we're going to look at, you know, the placement of other hog farms on other rivers so that this doesn't happen again. So like that was absolutely the result of public outcry and the work of our local partners raising this issue to that level. What's next on our list? Number seven on the list is the Lehigh River in Pennsylvania. The Lehigh River Valley is the site of an incredible amount of warehouse and distribution center build out. So on the eastern seaboard, this is the hub of all the warehouses and distribution centers and they're building, 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 taking over all kinds of land and farmland and it's not being well planned. And so you have this massive amount of development right along the river that is threatening the river, river health, water quality, wildlife habitat, people's connection to the river. And so we're not saying stop the development. We're saying look at it and plan wisely. Please develop in a way that protects the river, protects the corridor along the river to preserve river health, to preserve water quality. This is a situation where I think a lot of even some of the local decision makers might feel like they don't have any power to stop this. Well, what if we do, right? Like, what if we can? If you don't like something that's happening, organize and speak up against it. And and there's a bill in this Pennsylvania state legislature that could help here. We can change it if we speak up together. Hopefully that's what's happening here on the Lehigh. Number six on the list is the Eel River in California. Such a spectacular river, such a special place, such an important river for salmon, for California salmon runs in the Eel River. The problem here is that two obsolete dams that PG&E no longer wants, they've devastated salmon, they're blocking salmon, steelhead, and lamprey runs, threatening tribal culture and sustenance. Our message to PG&E is that they need to be part of the solution and help take these dams down. They've already said they don't want them anymore. The next step is let's work together, get their help to take the dams down and restore the river. So does that mean that within our current system of policy, that if somebody were to build a dam and then stop using it, they could just leave it and abandon it? That is unfortunately the case with a lot of damage caused to rivers, whether it's a dam, whether it's a a mine. In a lot of cases, the entity that owned and operated the thing, maybe they go bankrupt or maybe they just are defunct. The harm is still ongoing, right? So whose responsibility is it to fix it? In this case, the dam owner is still here. And so we think that that is a reasonable thing to ask. And are there precedents where this has happened? Yes. In a lot of cases, the dam owners do step up. They are taking responsibility. I mean, there have been 2,500 dams removed across the country successfully. So dam removal is something that we, we know how to do and we can do it well and it's proven and we're hoping to do it on the eel. Number five on the most endangered list for this year is the Clark Fork in Montana. What a gem of a place. People love the Clark Fork. The problem here is that toxic pollution from an old uh, pulp and paper mill is sort of like this ticking time bomb. It's posing a serious health risk to fish and wildlife and people, and we need to clean it up. One more big flood that mobilizes all this nasty pollution we don't want that to happen. So we've got to we've got to clean up this mess before it really causes more damage to the river and to communities. I see a fair amount of parallel between the Clark Fork River and the Eel River in that it's it's older infrastructure that continues to impact river health and communities. 
Yeah, I think the thing that often gets lost in conversation is rivers are, I'm going to use the word resource, but rivers are public resources. They don't belong to anyone. They belong to themselves. But rivers, you know, we collectively use them and benefit from them. For-profit companies, corporations can profit off of rivers, whether it's by building a dam, whatever it is. But we have to remember that these rivers belong to all of us in a way, and we all have a responsibility to take care of them. So when there is damage done like this, there is a responsibility on the part of that corporation to help make it right. And it also begs the question, like if we are going in the route of quantifying rivers, we've been talking a lot about the cost, but what about the cost of benefits? Like, is it profitable to have healthy waterways? Something that is constantly annoying to me is that oh, it's so expensive to remove a dam or clean up a toxic waste site. And it's not expensive to have polluted water flowing through our family's kitchen faucet or to be fishing and eating the fish and it's poison and you're putting poison into your body. Like, tell me, tell me the cost of that. This economy versus environment argument is so old and I know it's still out there, but we've got to get past that. Number four is the Lower Snake River in eastern Washington. The snake is an artery of the Pacific Northwest. It flows into the Columbia. The snake was on the list last year and has been in previous years because of four federal dams that need to come down. They are driving salmon to extinction. They are violating treaties with tribal nations. The good news here on the snake is that never before have we been so close to solutions. What we're calling for on the snake this year is federal investment to help replace the services of these four dams, hydropower, irrigation, transportation. You can't take the dams down until you have the services replaced. So we think it's a very practical, pragmatic way to keep momentum going um, with this river restoration effort. Let's replace the services. We have federal infrastructure funding that President Biden signed into law. Let's use that to invest in this infrastructure so that we can take a step forward with dam removal and river restoration to bring these salmon back. The Snake River was listed as number two most endangered last year and listed first in 2021. How did involvement of the people effectively move it down the list over time? The ranking is hard every year, and I wouldn't say that the snake is any less endangered or that the situation is less urgent. Part of this list year after year is that we want to spotlight different rivers. At the same time, like the snake, I mean, these rivers, they make repeat appearances because this isn't going to be solved in a year, right? We want to keep bringing the rivers back, telling the story, and you have to balance it with needing to tell other river stories. So it is a, it is a balancing act every year with the ranking. And how exciting is it that we've been able to evolve this campaign over a series of years to the point where we're advocating for systems to replace energy transport irrigation? That is incredibly exciting. I mean, we, a year or two ago, we were still trying to make the case that people should understand the need to remove the dams. Now, that's kind of a given. Elected officials from from the Pacific Northwest to the Biden administration, everyone agrees like, gosh, yeah, these dams need to come down. Now, how are we going to do it? Replace the benefits, invest in the right kind of infrastructure. Actually, this is something I heard somebody say about the Klamath one. So the Klamath is another massive dam removal effort. And with these big, big challenges, it seems impossible. 
And someone on the Klamath said, well, you know, you're close when you start trying to solve the other people's problems, right? That's when you get to the collaborative agreements and solutions. Like on the snake, you've got hydro and water and irrigation and transportation. We're trying to solve their problems now. And so when we start working together like that, that's when you know you're close to doing something pretty amazing. What is number three on the list? Number three is the Pearl River in Mississippi. This is a natural treasure, gorgeous river, so important for wildlife habitat and the city of Jackson. But the Pearl River is threatened by this development scheme. It's being billed as a flood control solution, but it's completely not. It would do the opposite. It's a real estate development project that would actually make flooding worse and make the city of Jackson's drinking water problems worse. If you recall the news from several months ago, maybe six months ago, a year ago, the city of Jackson had a really terrible drinking water crisis. And it's because of decades and decades of inequity, disinvestment. This development scheme would make that worse. So we need to stop it. That's that's what we're calling for here. And we need real flood protection and real drinking water solutions for the city of Jackson. Just out of curiosity, what might that look like? If you're talking about flood protection, building a dam, hardening a river with concrete levees, that kind of thing is not the number one solution you want to look at. Um, There are a lot of what are called like nature-based solutions, green infrastructure solutions that actually give the river room. Flooding is a reality. Rivers need to move water. They need to absorb water. So give that floodplain some room, let the river move back and forth. That's the way to do flood protection. In terms of drinking water, It's investing in uh, water treatment and common sense infrastructure needs that every city has, not this development real estate project. We have amazing partners on the Pearl River, and we think that there's hope there to, to get the right solution. Number two is the Ohio River. Uh, a river that's been in the news a lot lately because of that awful, disastrous train derailment that spilled a bunch of chemicals and caused real health problems for people who live nearby. The Ohio River is the drinking water source for more than 5 million people. It's the lifeblood of six states, and it has been completely hammered by industrialization and pollution. The call to action here is for Congress to put the funding up to really help make this river, um, help restore the river. And if you think about other big bodies of water, like the Chesapeake Bay, the Great Lakes, they all have their own identity and they're getting funding to help with habitat and, and community connection. The Ohio River isn't getting that love, right? It's not getting that funding. It's not getting that attention. And, and we need it to on a national level because it is such an important river and it is so, so important to so many people. Why are these other bodies of water getting attention? I don't know. I mean, the Ohio River has incredible people fighting for it, incredible champions in Congress. And so sometimes it just takes, unfortunately, like a tragic event, like this train derailment to finally get attention. I would bet that the Chesapeake Bay, the Great Lakes, like all of these places had probably had that event for themselves, right? To finally get the attention that was needed and the funding that was needed. And so hopefully this is the moment for the Ohio River. This is the moment when people can really step up, value it, and then submit to getting the river what it needs to be healthy. Little known fact, the Ohio River is the site of 
the nation's or the world's biggest paddle fest. It draws so many paddlers, canoeists, kayakers um, every, every August, I think it is. And it is an incredible asset for recreation. This episode is sponsored by the Denver area Nissan dealers. Right now I'm driving my Nissan Frontier long bed, four door full cab with a camper shell up and out of the Salt River Canyon in Arizona on top of the Mogollon Rim. Got three dudes in the truck. We got a truck bed full of our gear. We're pulling a trailer with three boats and we are cruising uphill. This thing is so solid and so steady with its nine gears. Great transmission, great shifting, really steady. We're on slippery roads, climbing uphill with traffic, lots of load, super safe, super strong, really comfortable. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com. We just covered numbers 10 through 2 of American Rivers' Most Endangered Rivers of 2023. It's now time for the grand reveal of the Most Endangered River. We'll overview the river, its significance, and the complexity of the threat it faces. And lastly, we'll point you in the direction of how you can engage. And this year's Most Endangered River in the nation is the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. The length within the park is 277 miles, but upstream and downstream of that are amazing canyons and and the extent of the Colorado River, which is about 1,450 miles in its full length. And really the threat to the Grand Canyon this year is twofold. The lingering 22-year drought that we've been living through has created such a supply and demand imbalance, as well as the legacy uh, management system for the whole Colorado River has just really taken its toll on the river from the headwaters all the way to Mexico. Water shortages, climate change, overuse are all impacting the river overall. What are the consequences of significantly lower water in the Grand Canyon? I think it's really important for people to understand that while the Grand Canyon hasn't been at the top of a lot of the drama in the media around shrinking water supplies, falling lake elevations in Powell and Mead, um, it, it really has taken a lot of the brunt of actual physical impacts to the Grand Canyon that have happened in the last couple of years due to the water supply crisis in the West, such as the erosion of beaches and sandbars, protection of cultural resources, and there's the renewed threat of non-native high-risk fish like the smallmouth bass and the green sunfish that because of the lake elevations have been coming through the turbines and into the Grand Canyon, which may not seem like such an urgent issue right off the bat, but because of the endangered species and the threatened species that live within Grand Canyon and the literally hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent on trying to recover some of the endangered species such as the humpback chub, Having smallmouth bass and green sunfish and other high-risk non-native fish coming through the dam is, is really causing concern among everyone who's connected to this place. And then let's not forget, there's 11 different tribes that have direct connection to the Grand Canyon, many of which consider it as their emergence place that they've been related to since time immemorial. And the real impact to Indigenous people and their connection to that place can't be understated. And what we really, really want to implore upon people is 
The environment is a foundational part of human health and public safety. And if we sacrifice the environment in order to try to force cuts or reduce cuts elsewhere, we're really going to be challenged with sustaining the places that sustain all of us. And ultimately, if you think about it, if we can't protect the Grand Canyon, one of the seven natural wonders of the world, a world heritage site, a connection for so many different types of people, whether they're international travelers or entire communities of people who consider that their place since time immemorial, we can't sacrifice that out of hand. And if we did, what does that say about how we're able to sustain the rest of the river system? Because there's incredible ecological resources, water supply resources, places that are that are important to communities and to agriculture, the $1.4 trillion economy that also need to be considered in the equation of how to manage this river. So it's more than just water supply. And it's more than just some number on a spreadsheet that says we can take this amount of cuts. It's really talking about life and sustainability in the Southwest. I was just going to say, I was just picturing myself like in the Grand Canyon. And it is so important for people who love the Grand Canyon to understand and be aware of all of these issues and decisions that are swirling around this place that you love. Do you both have a relationship with the Grand Canyon? I absolutely do. Um, My grandparents lived in Sedona. I grew up in a little town in Colorado called Paonia. And so we would commute back and forth between grandparents' house in Sedona a lot. And one of the trips when I was nine years old, my grandfather and I went and I had never been to the canyon. And, you know, he took me there and we stood on the rim and it's unbelievable. Just peering into that place on its own is magic. And and since then, I went to college at Arizona State University. I've remained in the West for most of my adult life and now have had the luxury of uh, a number of Grand Canyon rafting trips, as well as backpacking over the last two years alone, over 150 miles in the canyon. It's a, it's a really, really compelling and special and you know deeply moving place, especially when you're in it. I can't even express how anxious and and longing I get to get back in the canyon at every opportunity I can. In watching news coverage of some of the winter storms that have hit the West, I've seen a lot of narrative around like, oh, the drought is over. <laughs> we don't have to worry anymore. What we can acknowledge is that we're looking at different scales of events. You've pointed out that there's a larger trajectory of drought And that comes with smaller events that can be things like a particularly spectacular winter. Does that mitigate the need to adapt water management policies that are in place? No. This year (laughs) gives us a get out of jail free card from what was going to be a very severe crisis. It isn't just flippant to say one good snowpack is going to save the system because it isn't. Technological fixes that will take decades and billions of dollars like desalinization and cloud seeding and a pipeline from the Missouri or whatever, if those were viable options, they take decades to put in place. We need solutions and flexibility now because the water supply crisis in the Colorado River is present. We are getting a reprieve from this remarkable snowpack. 
it will take some pressure off the system for a year. But what if 2024's winter is like 2022's winter? What if we have 3 million acre feet of inflows into the Colorado River, which was predicted for this year, three or four million acre feet, but we're probably going to have 11 or 12. I mean, so we're getting a break. We have to take this opportunity to plan for the system that we have and and make these changes now across the entire basin. And it also begs the question, what is the scenario that we're trying to avoid over time if we keep going on the trajectory that we are? In late 2022, it looked like this could be the year that Lake Powell could fall below an elevation called minimum power pool, which is the lowest level at which the hydropower turbines in Lake Powell can still generate power. And so at that point, you're not able to generate hydropower through the dam. It's more difficult to pass water through the dam because there's only one more set of tubes below that level. But even then, those tubes have never been tested for full-time use. So there's a big concern that if you started using what are called the bypass tubes on a full-time basis, that it could damage the interior mechanisms of the dam. So this really was looking like a pretty severe crisis late into last fall even when looking at the projections for water supply in 2023. With this snowpack, it has taken the pressure off of this year's concerns, but definitely knowing that climate change is marching on and that temperatures are probably continuing to get warmer as time goes on, this is gonna be back. And what we really need is for the seven basin states and the federal government and every water user across the basin to use less. So we talked about what's at stake. What does the water management on the Colorado River currently look like and why is it outdated? So the framework for water management across the Colorado was formed in 1922 with the signing of the Colorado River Compact. Basically the Colorado River Compact divided the entire seven state region of the Southwest that shares the Colorado River into two chunks, the upper basin, which is the four states, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, and Colorado. And then the lower basin, which is Arizona, Nevada, and California. And it wasn't until the mid 1940s that Mexico came into the picture, but the 1922 compact set up the framework for how upper basin states deliver water to lower basin states and how much each of those seven states can use in any given year or over a 10-year time frame. So the problem is in 1922, they assumed the river was about 17 million acre feet. But in reality, the river more commonly over the last 100 years has flowed about 14 and 15 million acre feet. So significantly less than how the river is divided up. And when they signed the compact, Commerce Secretary Herbert Hoover said, we don't expect that the population of the Southwest will ever be larger than four times the amount that it is today. So that would be about 2 million people. Well, now there's 40 million people that rely on this river. The sheer fact that the compact was based on a larger amount of water than usually appears and that the population of the Southwest has grown has created pressures for water supply from the top of the basin all the way to Mexico that wasn't anticipated when the framework was set up. Then you layer on climate change. According to climate scientists Brad Udall and Jonathan Overpeck, 
as the climate has warmed about one degree Celsius, you would expect to see about a 10% reduction in the amount of water in a river like the Colorado. Since the year 2000, the Colorado River is about 19% smaller, and their projections are that by the year 2050, the Colorado River will be 30% smaller than its normal flows. So you have a framework that was set up based on a very wet period. You have an explosion of population in the area the river is trying to serve, and you have the reduction of flows by the sheer fact that climate change is warming the atmosphere is really causing a supply and demand imbalance that is affecting the entire system. And the Grand Canyon is at the center of that. In thinking about water management moving forward, why are you focusing on the demand? Well, ultimately, we're focusing on the demand because that is the greatest source of the imbalance. This is the situation we're going to be in for 100 years or 200 years or whatever. Climate change is not going to be reversed overnight. So the big question is, how do you ask a society to live within their means and to care about the system overall and the big picture of the entire community of the Southwest? Last fall, Bureau of Reclamation Commissioner Camille Tootin implored the states to come together and find a way to reduce the use of two to four million acre feet of water in the Colorado River. That's almost 25%. Now, the problem with that is there is a priority system that is set up through the compact and subsequent agreements. Federal money was used to build the Central Arizona project. And in part of that process, California said, in order to have our vote to use federal money for this project, Arizona has to go to the end of the line in terms of their water seniority. And so if you noticed a couple of years ago, as Lake Mead continued to fall, Arizona was the first one to have to take cutbacks. And so there's a priority system that is also complicating this need to use less across the board. California would say, well, these are our rights and we've negotiated for our rights. So why have rights if we're not allowed to use them? It's, it's extraordinarily complicated to figure this out. So let me get this straight. In the fall of last year, seven states were asked to reduce their water consumption two to four million acre feet. And California, because of its complicated relationship with being ahead in the line uh, of water rights, (laughs) initiated a stall. I wouldn't say California unilaterally stalled the progress. It, It was a very difficult challenge to start with. California just has the luxury, if you will, of being the most senior and having the rights. You know, logically, they would want to defend or retain those rights as much as they can. But it's a difficult thing to figure out. And I think all the states were challenged to try to balance what they can give up, what each state can can leave in the river versus, you know, what everybody else is going to be willing to do. And so the Bureau of Reclamation asked the seven states to come up with a proposal to reduce their usage. And what happened? Well, what happened is the states missed the deadline. Let's be let's be fair. That is an extremely difficult thing to ask agencies, states and the federal government to come together in only a few months and make that happen. So the deadline was missed. And then subsequently, The Bureau of Reclamation issued what's called a Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement, 
The day after our interview, I get a call from Sinjin. He's driving and excitedly tells me that the Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement, also called the SEIS, was just released. The following is a brief summary of what the Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement is and some of the many complex impacts that each alternative has. I encourage you to check out the report directly as well. According to the Bureau of Reclamation, the purpose of the Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement is to update the 2007 interim guidelines on how Glen Canyon Dam and Hoover Dam are operated. The Bureau states that the potential for Lake Powell and Lake Mead to reach critically low capacity warrant reevaluating 2007's operating guidelines. Starting April 14th, the public has a 45-day window to comment on three alternatives. That window ends on May 30th, 2023. First is the no-action alternative. The existing guidelines would govern the operation of Glen Canyon Dam and Hoover Dam at the risk of Deadpool. The following two alternatives could both reduce water deliveries to Arizona, Nevada, and California by as much as 13% more than what each state has already agreed to. The main difference between the two alternatives is how those reductions are distributed between states. Alternative Action 1 would adjust distribution between the lower Colorado River Basin based on seniority of water rights. California has seniority, then Nevada, then Arizona. This would have the biggest impact on Arizona, with potential to reduce the aqueduct that provides drinking water to Tucson and Phoenix to nearly zero, as well as impact Native American tribes whose right to the Colorado River water are guaranteed by treaty. Alternative Action 2 would adjust distribution in equal percentages between the lower Colorado River Basin. Equal cuts between states disrupts the law of the river's order of seniority, and this option's greater impact on California would affect Southern California's agricultural industry, which produces nearly half of the nation's fruits, nuts, and vegetables. Both alternatives cap the reduction at just over 2 million acre-feet for 2024, and in subsequent years at 4 million acre-feet if Lake Mead falls below 950 feet elevation. Federal officials expect a final SEIS and decision before August in order to begin implementing management decisions for 2024. This supplemental environmental impact statement is in essence setting up the scenario for how do we want to manage the river for the next 30 years starting in 2026. We'll be able to evaluate each of those alternatives and make your best judgment about how the river should be managed. So it looked pretty dire last year. There was serious concern about a lack of water supply and and a, and a pretty substantial supply and demand imbalance. And then that will translate into more thinking, more modeling about what do we do for the next 30 years. And thinking about the supplemental environmental impact statement, when people write comments, what leverage does that have? How is that message integrated or heard? There's a great deal of interest in how the public feels about a place and what are the priorities that they want to see put into practice through these processes. But the reality is, is that it's extremely important both for the river and the place and for, you know, the community large of the Colorado River system. But it's also important for the individual because if you make your voice heard and something good happens, you will have been part of the success of that effort. And if you don't speak up, you don't get that opportunity. Even if you can't be an expert in a 500-page document that is written in government speak, 
you can take action to say as simply as I think we should protect the Grand Canyon no matter what we do, or our water resources are getting smaller. Our availability of clean, safe, reliable drinking water is less. But every community that depends on the Colorado River deserves to have a voice. The government reads all of these comments. As these public comment periods are opened for the public to comment on, every comment that comes in is read. It is marked. There's many, many spreadsheets of analysis about these public comments, but it isn't just lost into the wind. It it does make a difference. We've seen that in a number of cases. This is going to be another one of those places. The future is not set for the Colorado River, and every person listening to this podcast has the opportunity to make their voice heard and have an impact on this place. If you were to point our listeners right now, where would you direct people? I would tell people to go to AmericanRivers.org.org, and on our homepage, you'll find a way to learn more and take action for the Grand Canyon and all of the most endangered rivers for 2023. And there will be a pop-up. There'll be a screen at the front that shows you how to take action on behalf of either the Colorado River or any of the other nine rivers that we talked about today. So it's really easy. AmericanRivers.org. And we have a number of social media channels that you can follow us on, whether it's on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, and stay involved. We put out information about different rivers across the country every day. There's an opportunity to take action on behalf of any of these rivers any day of the year. Amy and Sinjin, I am so incredibly grateful for the hours of work that you've put into publicizing this report and advocating on behalf of these absolutely incredible rivers. Thank you for taking the time to teach us about them and get us engaged and help us find our footing and fighting for them. And I look forward to talking with you again. Well, thanks for doing what you do. We're grateful for you and appreciate all of your listeners too. Thank you, Samara. Appreciate you a lot. A 38-year-old tradition-sized thank you goes out to American Rivers, Amy Sowers-Kober, and Sinjin Eberly for walking us through the complex challenges surrounding America's 10 most endangered rivers. Their 2023 report can be found on their website at www.americanrivers.org. Also on their website, you can find photos of these rivers, an incredible story map of the Colorado River, and tangible ways to take action today. www.americanrivers.org. I'm Samara Rosen. Thanks for listening to The River Radius. Samara Rosen is our contributing host today. You can find links in our show notes today directly to American Rivers, their report on the most endangered rivers of 2023, the story map, and links to our guests. Today's sponsor is the Denver area Nissan dealers. You can find links in today's show notes to their Instagram. Their website is www.nissanusa.com. All River Radius social media is managed by Samantha Seiss. Our music is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. And it's not expensive to have polluted water flowing through our family's kitchen faucet? No. This year (laughs) gives us a get-out-of-jail-free card. We don't necessarily have the language to fully communicate what we're talking about. We have keep it pee for a second, but it's hard sometimes to put into words without using like 
poetry. I can't even express how anxious and and longing I get to get back in the canyon at every opportunity I can. Well, what if we do, right? Like, what if we can?